Bless his holy name. I think it's important that we've come to yet another major turning point in our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of John. We see now as we enter the last part of John, a turning away. We see back in Matthew where it says, John the Baptist is telling them the axe is at the root of the tree. And now we see because of the blindness of unbelief that there's a turning toward the Gentiles and toward those who will accept the gospel for what it is. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John, chapter 12, verses 36 through 43. That's the book of John, chapter 12, verses 36 to 43. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, Speak, O Lord. And we ask that you would stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 12, 36 through 43. And the word of God says this. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of life. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's say that one more time. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the living and the acting out of his holy word. You may be seated. The question becomes this morning, Pastor, what is spiritual blindness? To be spiritually blind is to not have the ability to see Christ. And if you don't have the ability to see Christ, you do not have the ability to see God either. Paul tells us in Colossians, the first chapter, verses 15 through 20, these words as he speaks of Christ. He, personal pronoun refers to Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for him. And he is a before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything in him, everything might be preeminent. I want to stop there for a moment because sometimes we confuse the word prominent and preeminent. To be prominent means to stand out. To be prominent means to be noticeable, to lead. But to be preeminent means to be stellar in all that you do, to be surpassing in all that you do before others, and to be superior over others. Christ Jesus in the lives of Christians should be preeminent at all times. The scripture goes on to tell us, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Spiritual blindness, new life, is a grievous condition. It's experienced by those who do not believe in God, do not believe in Jesus Christ, and do not hold to his word. You know, when Christ addressed Peter back in the sixth chapter of John, right when so many disciples had fled from him because the demands of the gospel had become too tough. In fact, it says in there that these are hard things to hear. Jesus asked a question of Simon Peter around verses 68, 69 of chapter 6, and he says, Simon, will you leave also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Those who reject Christ are lost spiritually. They are blind and they are perishing. They have chosen not to accept the teachings of Christ. They have chosen not to accept the authority of Christ in their lives. So they have been blinded to his knowledge and they have been blinded to the reality that he is everything that he says he is. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 4 says it this way. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, small g, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, unbelievers are blind to the manifestations of God they do not receive his word. They do not believe in Jesus Christ. They do not understand that it clearly says at the beginning of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Bible describes those who do not accept the things of God in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. He says they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. They are foolishness to them, and they are not able to understand those things because they must be spiritually discerned. Later on, even Peter in his epistle talks about these scoffers that will come in at the last days with all of their scoffing, and they will want to do what? They want to follow their only sinful desires. Listen to me, New Life. Those who reject Christ and his word are spiritually blind. They cannot understand the truth of the scriptures. The truth sounds like foolishness to them. Psalm 14 and 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are all corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Matthew 7, 26 says, And everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Because of their blindness, because of their rejection of God, because of their not holding true to his word, they find themselves in a perilous and an unsaved condition. The spiritually blind are simply incapable of understanding God's word. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Listen to this. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. Why would we ever as Christians listen to an unbelieving world when, a, when an unbelieving world doesn't have what we have, which is the Holy Spirit that guides us, that teaches us, that reminds us of everything that Christ has ever taught us? Paul tells us in Romans 8, 8 through 9, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone that does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. Yeah, there are those who are outside of Christ, outside of God, who are steeped in the things of this world, that are in love with all of his passions, their eyes are blinded to the Spirit of God. And as John says in 1 John 2, 15 through 16, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But that person's love is from the world. Spiritual blindness, the scriptures repeat over and over again, is because that we are following not the leading of the Holy Spirit, but the leading of the God of this world. We are falling prey to the schemes and the traps of unbelievers. We have become so caught up in the affairs of the world, so caught up in moral darkness, we have been overcome by spiritual blindness. There's a part of your brain called the amygdala. And it's a small part. It, it looks like an almond in its shape. And this amygdala controls the fear and the anxiety that you feel. So whenever it is overstimulated, you find yourself caught up in fear and anxiety, and you put logic on the shelf. So if they, if they scare you enough, you will forget everything you have been taught, everything you've ever believed, everything that makes logical sense, and that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to overstimulate that part of you to point your spirit in the direction of fear and anxiety. But what the Scripture says, it says that God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power love, and self-control. As believers, we have the Spirit of God, and it should be reigning in our lives, and it should be enough to ward off the debilitating effects of Satan's power and the world's influence upon us. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. The weapons that this world uses against us are deceitful. They are crafty schemes. They are made to make us doubt and stumble. But God has given us all the weapons we need to ward off these flaming arrows. He's told us time and time again, he tells us again this morning, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me 
will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This morning, in the time that we have together, I want to speak to you concerning the subject, the blindness of unbelief. Pastor, what is the blindness of unbelief, and what does the blindness of unbelief reveal in a person's life? I believe that the blindness of unbelief hinders our true sight, that the blindness of unbelief hardens our heart, and the blindness of unbelief hijacks the glory of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, touch our hearts this morning like never before. Let us not leave this service the way we came in. Let us have a clear understanding. Let us be overwhelmed by the fact that you, O oh God, you and you alone have opened our eyes that we can see your son, Jesus Christ. That you and you alone, O oh God, have opened our ears and allowed us to hear and believe the gospel. That you and you alone, O oh God, has regenerated us and given us faith so that we might repent of our many sins against you. And because of that, we have turned away from Satan and we have turned toward you. And because we have turned toward you, you have healed us and forgave us. We are ever, forever grateful for your grace and mercy towards us. We thank you in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's children said, Amen. You see, this blindness of unbelief hinders our true sight. And I think John really gets to it here in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 12. Watch what he says here as Jesus reintroduces himself again as the light of the world in a different way. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I think we see here that Jesus has given them a warning of urgency concerning their present focus. He tells them, you are in the presence of the light, the very light of the world, and while I am with you, you must believe in the light that you might become sons and daughters of the light, and you might cast away darkness and cast away unbelief. And then we see Jesus do something that seems strange. He hides himself from those, those who are still unbelievers, which indicates that they did not heed the warning. And since they didn't heed the warning, the intimate judgment of God is about to come upon them who are still in unbelief. Jesus here is reaching the completion of his work for the people of Israel, and he knows that he's going to only reach the remnant that has been ordained by God. We will see as we continue in John in the remaining chapters uh, before the trial and crucifixion of our Savior, you see Jesus start to narrow his efforts to the remnant. At the same time, he's narrowing his focus to the Jews. You see him expand his efforts toward the Gentiles. Still a great majority of the Jews are excluded here, shut out only because of their own unbelief. Time after time after time again, they have seen miraculous signs that he has shown them. These are people who were looking for signs. But still, it did not make them reconsider. It did not make them reflect. It did not make them repent of their unbelief. And when you think about it, is this not the very course and the purpose of the Gospel of John? What does John say about his Gospel himself in John 20, 30-31? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. So now we see from John 12, 37 through 40, he starts to, Jesus starts to cite Isaiah 53 and 1 and then Isaiah 6 and 10 to show that this unbelief, this rejection of Jesus Christ as their Messiah had already been predicted in Scripture and now it only serves to confirm, not to thwart, it, only to confirm that the sovereign plan of the Lord is at work. Isaiah 53 and 1 reveals that the servant of the Lord is rejected by the people, but at the same time, he's exalted by his Father God. Isaiah 6 and 10 reveals that, listen to this, the hardening of the people's heart is ultimately performed by God himself. You, you must understand this morning, the same one that gives you sight is the same one that makes you blind. We see in these present verses the fulfillment of these quotations from the second half or in the second half of John's gospel. We see here an emphasis from John on the divine sovereignty of God and also our human responsibility. On one hand, the people should have believed in God. They are held guilty for their unbelief. After all that Jesus has shown them through signs and wonders, the scripture still says they did not believe in him. Then on the other hand, at the same time, the scripture tells us that God blinded their eyes so they did not have the spiritual ability to see. And John doubles down here when he says, they, in 39, he says, they could not believe. For it is God who gives us the ability to believe. I like how Matthew addresses this in chapter 11 of Matthew 25 through 27 when he says these words. At that time, Jesus declares, this is Jesus speaking to the Father God, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise and understanding. See, he hid it from the ones that thought they knew what was what and revealed it to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Don't miss this. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You only know the Father because Jesus reveals him to you. If he passes over you, you're in the same spot you were before. We spoke about it last week. We were all, when the scriptures speak of the fact that he grabs us out of the fire, like snatching a branch out of the fire, the problem is we don't believe that we're all in the fire. Absent Jesus Christ, we were all going to hell. We see these people here, and they're like the ancient Israelites. Remember back in Deuteronomy 29, 3 through 4, it says this, With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that sees or ears that hear. You know, faith... It's not just based on signs, and, and faith that's based on signs is obviously inferior, but it's better than unbelief. I mean, even Jesus said that in John 10, 37 through 38, when he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I, but if I do them, 
even though you do not believe in me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that my Father is in me, and I am in the Father. You have to understand, brothers and sisters, you have to study Scripture for you to truly believe Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong, don't do the same thing that the Pharisees did. The study of the Scriptures does not impart life itself. Even Jesus told us that when Jesus says, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What is Jesus saying here, Pastor? Jesus is saying you refuse to believe in me, whether you read it or not. The scriptures bear witness about me, that I'm the one that gives life. You see, the study of scripture ought to result in a greater, more genuine faith. And because of that greater, more genuine faith, it should result in obedience in our actions, and it should result in transformed lives. It should not just be the mere acquisition of biblical knowledge, but we are not to just read the Scriptures, but we are to be about doing the Scriptures. The people in the Old Testament knew the Scriptures back and forth. They knew it better than we do, because they didn't have, they had to learn it and be able to repeat it orally. But yet, their unbelief blinded them to true sight. And something else here, their unbelief hardened their heart. I want you to look at verses 38 through 40 of John 12. 38 through 40. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, stop right there. He, personal pronoun, refers to God the Father. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. To turn is what? Repent. To turn around. To turn, and I would kill them. I think the scriptures are more than clear here, but John seeks to give us a further explanation because he understands that people are going to have a problem with this large-scale a catastrophic unbelief that's going on in Israel. There's ample evidence that there is substantial unbelief of the Jewish people before the resurrection of Christ. And not many converted after the resurrection. But the answer for us is clear as Christians. I think it's clearly articulated in Romans chapter 9 through 11 and also in our passage today, because I think John wants us to understand that this unbelief that's going on right now in the Scriptures was already foreseen and that it was necessary. We see here in verse 39, John ins insists that the reason the people could not believe was because of what Isaiah had already prophesied. John is not doing anything more than summarizing the truth here in his gospel. He wants us to know that the nation of Israel has refused to be regenerated through the Spirit of God, and what lays at that core is their unbelief. John 3, 3 through 8 says it this way. John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus answered them. He's talking to Nicodemus here, okay? Truly, truly, I said to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot 
enter the kingdom of God. Then he goes further to explain here. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit, capital S, is spirit, lowercase s means us. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Then he tells us about how the spirit works. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I believe clearly that Scripture speaks of our election, but I do not have an election detector. So we preach the gospel to everyone so that what's in them might be awakened and that they might confirm it and come forth and proclaim Christ as their Lord and Savior. We know that the leaders of Israel were blind even though they thought they could see. We, we learned that back in chapter 9 of John. We know that they really, if they were, they understood what John was saying in the scriptures, that John had already stated this coming unbelief back in John 1, 10 through 13. Listen what he said. He was in the world. He, personal pronoun, refers to Christ. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all, and see the difference, his own people didn't receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were not born, or who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. If you and I are ever going to be born again, it's only because God has allowed us to be born again. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. It's not through normal circumstances, but it's through God's sovereign choice. I think we also see here in verse 40 that John is trying to make his point clear. So what does he use to cite this? He goes all the way back to Romans 10 and 16, and he says this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Well, pastor, where did Paul get this from? Well, Paul got it from Isaiah 53 and 1. And the question in Isaiah 53 and 1, the the prophet's report of the astonishment of the nations concerning the servant of God who had been rejected by people and exalted by God. And then there's another question that goes immediately after that in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Turn to that for just a moment. I want you to look at it. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished, at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human assemblance. Now, you're talking about the fact that Christ is on the cross. He's been beaten, right? And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told to them they now see, and that which they had not heard, they understand. Through this, what looked like a tragedy on the cross is really a triumph because we see even in his humiliation, Christ Jesus is exalted. He's high and lifted up. And those who didn't believe, some will come to believe. Romans 15, 21 says it this way. Those who have, who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ is the true illustration of the gospel 
itself. That one man died who was sinless. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This phrase, the arm of the Lord, deals with the miraculous signs that they saw over and over and over again, but they rejected. John reminds us in 39 and 40 with these words, Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, He, personal pronoun, refers to God. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Verses 39 and 40, really 39 ties the unbelief to the picture that is developed in 38 through 40. The inability to believe is tied to the predictions of the judicial hardening that God has placed upon those who refuse to believe. The passage is cited from Isaiah 6 and 10. And you also, in the New Testament, see it mentioned again in Mark 4 through 12, Mark 4 and 12, when it says, So they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. It even goes into Acts. You look at Acts. Acts 28, 26 through 28. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. See, that's the question we need to ask one another. Have, has our heart grown dull to the things of God? These people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can bear with their eyes they can barely see, and with their ears they can barely hear. They have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And what are the last three words? They will listen. You see, all through the New Testament, that's a play on the word here, akuro, and it, it means that if I hear something, then I will understand it, and if I understand it, I will perform in obedience. And it's no different than our understanding of the word here. How many times have you asked your child, did you not hear me? And what you're saying is that I said something, you heard it, but you're reacting differently than what I just said. So you could not have heard me. God is saying the same thing to us. I'm always speaking to you and you're never listening because if you were listening, I would see a change in that behavior I will see you move from being obnoxious to being obedient. I will see you move from being fearful to being faithful. Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go, and said to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and, and lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, I want to show you how God works. He commissions this prophet. He gives him a vision. He tells him to go to a people, 
to preach the gospel to them, and he tells them that they're not going to hear, they're not going to see, they're not going to understand, they're not going to repent. And Isaiah willingly goes and does exactly what God has called for him in his ministry with full knowledge that his ministry will not be fruitful. Because God is going to harden their hearts. You see, that's the thing about the Word of God. It either draws you or drives you away. Truth will either draw you in and make you beckon to hear more truth or will make you buck up and walk away. Because you don't want to deal with truth. You want to be entertained. You want to see a hoop. You know, you'll be jumping through hoops until you go to hell. But you don't want to deal with truth because truth is going to impact your behavior. Truth is going to impact how, whether or not you fear God. Because some of us don't know enough to know that we should fear God. Romans 9.18 says it this way, and this is in the authority of God. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But the one that always gets me is 2 Thessalonians 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those, don't miss the words, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Watch what happens here. Therefore, God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. How many times have we been caught up in something and we think we're getting over on God and God's getting over on us? How many of us have willfully wanted to be blind to the truth of God's word to the point that that blindness proves to be fatal. If you read this in a superficial fashion, you might think this is harsh. You might think this is negative. You might think this is even robotic. But I think there's four things you got to keep in mind. Number one, God is sovereign. And in these matters, he never pits uh, his sovereignty against human responsibility. Secondly, God has a right, he's the judge, for judicial hardening. And he doesn't do this arbitrarily. He's not morally neutral. And this doesn't happen to morally pure people, but it's a holy condemnation of guilty people who condemn themselves through their own belief. Thirdly, God's sovereignty should be seen towards us as an incredible cause for hope. We should be overwhelmed by the fact I can hear, I can see, I believe. And that wouldn't have happened without God's intimate involvement in my life. I'm not there, but I'm better off than when I was blind and deaf and did not understand at all that it is a privilege to believe, a privilege to understand and to see Christ for who he is. Fourthly, this sovereignty of God that hardens our heart is a work of God. I want you to turn. I want to make sure everybody gets here. Go to Romans 9. 22 through 33. Romans 9, 22 through 33. Bless his holy name, are we there? Romans 9, 22 through 33. What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Stop right there. We see clear here that God is not mocked, that God has a plan, that God has a timetable, that God has a people, that he's showing patience with all those people living outside of his will. He's showing patience not for them, but for us, that we might be awakened and come to him that we belong. It goes on in the passage. As indeed he says in Hosea. Now remember Hosea was a prophet that he had marry a prostitute and she had illegitimate children outside of their marriage because he wants to show uh, through the prophet how he feels about spiritual adultery. So he lets his prophet go through marital infidelity to feel the same way he feels when we turn to other gods for help instead of recognizing he's our father. Look what he says. Those who were not called my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said, you are not my people, there they will be called, or be called the sons of the living God. What is Paul doing here? Again, he is quoting Hosea 2 and 23 and Hosea 1.10. He, he wants to illustrate the stunning grace that he has for us. I mean, that, it's inconceivable how you would deal with that in a marriage an outside child and still understand the faithfulness that God calls you to. He's calling the Gentiles to salvation here. He's calling the sinful people to himself just as he was calling Israel to himself and showing them mercies that they did not deserve. Not one of us can presume on God's grace. God calls all and he shows all undeserved mercy. It goes on, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and would have become like Gomorrah. You know, I don't think there's any other incident throughout biblical history that comes up three and four times in the New Testament like Sodom and Gomorrah. That he constantly tells you what that type of behavior leads to, what that type of judgment is called for. And if the church of Jesus Christ thinks it can embrace that and still survive, it has lost its mind because I don't see God writing an addendum to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. Here we see Israel was judged and only a remnant of them would experience salvation. Israel deserves, just like we deserve, to be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God has mercy and has spared some. It goes on to say, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? Then it comes a question, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. Stop right. We cannot work our way into heaven. 
There is nothing we can do that will appease a holy God in our sinful lives. That's why Jesus Christ did in his all-redeeming, all-substitutional death on the cross, he who, was, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on words. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Zion is just another name for Israel in that he's bringing to Israel a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For our unbelieving brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts, Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling. That's why they're tripping. Because they can't embrace that and still live the life they want to live. And he's a rock of offense. Because if I tell you that you have to live your life by the prescriptions that are written out by Dr. Jesus Christ and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that is offensive to you. He should not have any authority in your life. But I'm here to tell you, whether you believe or not believe, Jesus is Jesus. And he has all authority in your life, whether you obey and or not obey. And one day... Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Every knee that bows didn't bow out of reverence. Some bowed because they were made to bow. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here you see Paul assessing the situation. Here are Gentiles who were not the chosen people who did not seek a right standing with God, but now, because of their faith, they enjoy a right standing. Israel pursued a right standing with God through works and failed to achieve it. Now, they are humbled by seeing those who weren't a people become a people. You know, when we go back and look at John here, John puts all... In the Hebrew text, when we look in that, Isaiah. Isaiah moves from the heart to the ears to the eyes, but John reverses the sequence, and he runs from sight to hearing to understanding. And it's, it's no big surprise that he stresses on sight because he's already given us the whole book, the whole chapter 9 of the blind man, and he wants us to understand what spiritual... Uh, blindness, the force of it will do. Lastly, here he says that I will heal them. So there's spiritual healing that happens when we turn and we repent. We are regenerated. And when we're regenerated, then faith happens. God gives, God gives us the faith to believe in him. That is so counterintuitive. But without God giving, regenerating us that we might hear, that we might see, that we might understand, we will still be in our former position. Here, Isaiah speaks of the fact that he saw Jesus' glory. He saw the glory of the Father and recognizing that the Father and the Son are one. So he speaks of the fact that I saw the glory of him and spoke of him. The blindness of unbelief hijacks the glory of God. Look at verses 42-43. Nevertheless, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. As Joni was ministering to us 
she told us that there's a great cause in obedience to Christ Jesus, and there are things that you might suffer loss in, temporal things. You might lose friends who don't want to go as far as you are going. You might lose associates that don't want to change their behavior. You know, you may have single male friends that want to go to Hooters for wings. I mean, you want to go to Hooters for wings. They want to go look at breasts and thighs. You see, that's a whole different setup. That's not why you're there. So you got to be willing to pave that, claw, that cost if you want to see his glory. You see, believers here and leaders, even though they believed in him, were so afraid of what other people thought, so afraid of being put out of the synagogue, they would never, ever let it be known that they believed in him. Their faith was so weak, they wouldn't take any step to threaten their so-called position in a synagogue. Why? Because they love the praise from men more than the praise that comes from God. How many of us are like that? How many of us are more concerned about what people think than what God thinks? There's not a person on this earth that can put you in hell or put you in heaven, but God can. Man can kill the body, but God can kill the body and soul in hell. So, Pastor, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is the beauty of his spirit. It's not aesthetic beauty or material beauty, but it's the beauty that emulates from its character. It is who he is. John, as you were, James 1 and 10, speaks of the rich man to glory in his humiliation, indicating that glory does not come from riches or power or material things, that glory comes from God. The glory of man is the beauty of man's spirit. That is fallible. It passes away, but the glory of God never passes away. Isaiah 43 and 7 say that God created us for his glory and that we are to glorify him in all that we do, that we are vessels that in all things we should find a way to lift him up. Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens are telling us the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day by day he pours forth speech, and night to night he reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor there are not words. There is no voice that is heard. The line that has gone out through all the earth and all their utterances to the end of the world. Right now, you and I, we see everything through a mirror dimly. But there is one day that we will see everything clearly and that we will see him clearly. And as we stand before a holy God, we want to stand there understanding that it is his mercy. Total, we're totally there undeserving of any action that we have done. But since we have changed, since we have been saved, we have moved our life to the realm of serving him in every possible way that we can. And that we want to be able to show his glory in the lives that we live before an unbelieving world, that we are more concerned about his glory than we are the glory that comes from man. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you, Lord. We ask that these words be chiseled into our heart, chiseled into our mind, that you eradicate all fear in us, that you give us a sense of urgency that knowing that the time is nigh, we do not know the day of the hour, but we want to be caught at the right moment 
when you come like a thief in the night, living our lives in a way that glorifies you. Build us up on every leaning side, Lord. Let us not fail you. Let us not fall into fear. Let us, let us not dismiss what we know to be true. Let us not buy into the lie of this world. Let us see the corruption that exists in this world and let us flee to you who are a present help in a time of trouble. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen, amen for the word of God.